On September 14th, 1979, Henry Jarecki is on the phone in his glass-walled office in the World Trade Center. And then, he sees a familiar figure. Herbert Hunt has just walked in, accompanied by one of his lawyers. Jarecki is surprised. He wasn't expecting visitors, and especially not one from Dallas, Texas. He's also caught off guard because Herbert has arrived at a very tense time. To put it simply, the Hunts are winning. And Jarecki is losing badly. Because the price of silver just keeps going up. It's going up because the Hunts keep purchasing silver. Plus, in addition to their piles and piles of physical silver, the Hunts are buying silver futures in what's known as a long position. Essentially, they're betting that the price of silver will continue to rise. Jarecki has made the opposite bet. He shorted silver, betting that the price would go down. And that bet is losing. Things are so bad for Jarecki that every time the price of an ounce of silver rises $1, he has to pay $30 million in margin calls to his creditors. We talked about this in episode two, but to recap, a margin call is basically just when a guy who's lent you a ton of cash is like, hey man, you still good for this? And to prove it, you hand over whatever's in your wallet. Jarecki is laid back about this in our interview. What was that like? Like having to pay like these wild margin calls. Isn't that like, that's terrifying. It's all right. I mean, the banks, the banks knew me. One of my colleagues, uh, we went down the elevator one day and the market had gone up the limit, which was a dollar. And he said, oh, well, he said, another day, another dollar. Despite Jarecki's calm, this is obviously a crazy position to be in. And Stephen Fay's book says people all over Wall Street are worried Jarecki's company will become insolvent. In fact, that's part of why Herbert makes a surprise trip to New York. The Hunts have borrowed money from Jarecki using silver as collateral. So Jarecki has their silver in his vault. If he goes into bankruptcy, he might take their silver with him. Herbert meets with Jarecki because he wants out. But Jarecki doesn't budge. Herbert decides this Wall Street fat cat is trying to rip him off. So he calls Bunker to tell him to fly to New York so that both brothers can be there in person to put the screws to Jarecki. What follows is a days-long negotiation. The situation? Jarecki wants to stop losing money. The Hunts want more silver. When it comes down to it, it's actually pretty simple. Even so, the deliberations last so long that the warring parties sometimes eat together. Here's Jarecki's impression of Bunker ordering dinner. I think I'll have me some more of that Chinese food. Because this deal is so complicated, both the Hunts and Jarecki each have their own team of lawyers and accountants with them to sort out the details. At one point in the deliberation, the Hunts have an important decision to make, and they say they need a minute to discuss it. And so my guys... The lawyers got up, the accounts got up, um, they sort of filed out of the room, and to my amazement, their lawyers and accounts got up and filed out of the room. When they said there's something we want to discuss, they meant we, they meant the two of them. At some point, there's a breakthrough. Jarecki and the Hunts figure out a win-win situation. He won't have to pay tens of millions of dollars every time the price of silver goes up, and the Hunts will get more of that precious metal they crave. 
The parties end up working out the biggest silver deal of all time up to that point. Jarecki agrees to sell the Hunts almost the entirety of his company's physical silver holdings. And the Hunts agree to pay about $400 million for it. The exchange closes out Jarecki's costly short position in the silver market, so he no longer has the bets that have been costing him money. The deal wipes out his debt and adds a profit, so his company is once again fat and happy. And the Hunts? Well, they get even more silver. 23 million ounces, to be exact. When the deal goes through, it might as well be a public announcement that the Hunts want every ounce of silver they can get their hands on. The markets notice. And so do the Hunt family's most hated foe, government regulators. The Hunts are now very much on the radar. The price of silver is now around $17 an ounce. When the Hunt brothers made their first big purchases in the early 70s, it was between $2 and $3 an ounce. If the brothers could find a way to sell their holdings now, they'd make a giant profit before the regulators can act. But they don't. And they have no intention of looking for the exit. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. From Campside Media, I'm Bijan Steven, and you're listening to Eclipsed. By the late 1970s, Bunker and Herbert's silver dreams are close to coming true. The rumor that Hunt's broker is on his way to the exchange is all it takes to cause panic buying. It's estimated that this past year alone, he made from 2 to $4 billion just on silver. And the Hunts already own so much silver that the higher the price climbs, the more collateral they have to buy even more silver. It's a virtuous circle. And now, a powerful member of the Saudi royal family has also caught the silver bug. The only people with wealth to match are the oil sheikhs. Hunt persuaded a number of Saudi princes to back his play. It's a bull market, and the Hunts are the biggest bulls of all. They look unstoppable. But as the Hunts grow bolder, they come to the attention of government regulators. You know, the umpires in the silver market. And the umpires have the power to spoil the Hunts' plans. If they choose to act. This is the third of our four-part series on Silver Thursday. This is episode three, Working the Refs. If you're feeling a little lost or confused right now about margin calls, futures, long positions, short positions, that's totally okay. Because it's kind of the point. Finance is complicated because they don't necessarily want you to know what it is they're up to. Which is why I've enlisted the help of Diana Enriquez. She's here to clear things up. One of us forgot to turn off our phone. (laughs) It wasn't me. (laughs) Enriquez is a journalist who's written several books about big Wall Street scandals. And she's also written about Silver Thursday. Finance has been her passion ever since she was an investigative reporter in New Jersey, chasing a story about corruption in city government. Doing that investigation required that I learn how the municipal bond market worked. 
And it was love at first sight. (laughs) Enriquez will be our guide to the regulators, the umpires who are watching over the market, and who are just beginning to take notice of the hunts. But before we get into the regulations, I'll let Enriquez describe what people think the hunts are up to. What they were trying to do was corner the market in a good. And market corners are something that have been attempted in the past. The dream of somebody trying to corner a market is that you control so much of the supply of an item that you can dictate the price. They would have set the price. They would have been the people you had to buy silver from or sell silver to. Cornering the market is very illegal, and everybody in finance knows that. The hunts also know this. It's in fact one of the most important things that regulators are supposed to guard against. But proving that someone is trying to corner a market can be difficult. If you're buying physical silver and silver futures, to take just one example, it can be difficult for the umps to see the real size of your holdings. Physical silver is cumbersome. You've got to ship it from where you bought it from, or you've got to have a place to store it. That's why it took so many cowboys to fill up those planes to Switzerland. But silver futures weigh far less. They can also be difficult for regulators to track. The cash market for silver is pretty visible. Lots of people can see how much silver supply is out there. So we don't know exactly when they decided that futures market silver, that is silver futures, paper silver, was a cheaper, easier, less transparent way to buy up silver. Uh, But at some point they did, and then it became the preferred way for them to hedge. And their buying, of course, became a self-fulfilling prophecy. Their buying drove up the price of silver, making what they already owned more valuable so they could borrow more money against it. Of course, this is why they're on the REF's radar. The government regulator in charge of the silver market is the Commodity Futures Trading Commission, the CFTC, in Washington, founded in 1974. Which, as you'll recall, is the year that Bunker and Herbert were flying literal tons of silver to Swiss bank vaults. Notice that the CFTC has futures in the name. The CFTC is headquartered in a building on K Street. The facade is a brutalist honeycomb of concrete and glass. But the regulators inside the building aren't exactly prepared to deal with a catastrophe. In fact, the CFTC is basically the creation of the players in the futures markets. They had designed the regulator they wanted, or at least a regulator they could tolerate. It was a tiny little agency on starvation rations trying to regulate a gigantic, rapidly diversifying futures marketplace. So it was understaffed, and it had only been created about six years before. So it was was barely an elementary school by the time of, uh, of this crisis. And this very young agency is run by a very young man by Washington standards, at least. Chairman Jim Stone is in his early 30s and only slightly balding. Here he is in a BBC interview at the beginning of the 80s. The CFTC is here to protect small customers and commercial users of the commodities markets. It is not here to protect large speculators. Jim Stone had been appointed by uh, President Carter uh, to the commission and had become its chair a very bright Harvard-educated economist, and he was in charge of regulating a very laissez-faire, very keep-your-hands-off-us marketplace. 
During the fall of 1979, Chairman Stone of the CFTC is growing worried about the power of the Hunt brothers in the silver market. Stone does his worrying in his private office inside the CFTC building, because he's not very popular with fully half of his own commissioners. Stone believes his job as a regulator is to regulate things. Colleagues, on the other hand, are in favor of a, shall we say, more hands-off approach, even as the prospect of the hunts cornering the silver market is becoming a real possibility. And, of course, Stone knows that the silver market is important. If it's disrupted, others could be destabilized. We can't take a risk that something which comes out of a, simply a desire for excessive speculation is going to tear the financial fabric of the United States. We cannot take that risk. Stone also knows that he can't exert much power through his hamstrung agency. The best he can do at the moment is get on the phone with the people running the markets and insist they do a better job of regulating themselves. Chairman Stone urges the markets in New York and Chicago to crack down on the hunts by limiting the amount of silver they can own. Sort of like the limit one per customer language on a coupon for, say, toilet paper. Only in this case, it could even be retroactive. So the store could come to your house and tell you that you have to sell back the stash of toilet paper you've been hoarding. Obviously, this would be devastating for Bunker and Herbert's seeming ambitions to corner the market in silver. But then... Chairman Stone's campaign actually works. In October 1979, the Chicago market imposes a position limit that requires the hunts to unload lots of their silver by a certain date, April 1st, 1980. And it will limit their silver buying in the future. This is a huge blow for the hunts. It's also incredible that the markets listen to the relatively powerless Stone in the first place. And now they were used to ignoring their regulators. Uh, that was easy, but they were themselves getting concerned. Bunker is in Dallas when he gets the news. Chicago is trying to force him and Herbert to sell millions of dollars of their silver. Bunker calls one of the decision makers at the Chicago market. He says, quote, You can't do this. You wouldn't dare. You're the last bastion of free enterprise in the world. Bunker also complains to the CFTC. He cites one of his grievances from a previous spat with government regulation. He says, quote, This is like Libya. They're taking my property away. Part of the reason Bunker is so irate is that he worries Chicago might be the start of a trend. If the Chicago market is acting to limit his silver buying, the market in New York might be next. On January 8th, 1980, Bunker actually visits the CFTC, that concrete and glass building on K Street in Washington. He's come because he's heard Jim Stone and the other CFTC commissioners are having a meeting with the New York Exchange. Bunker stands in the lobby, asking to be let in. But Chairman Stone shouts, Tell him no! By this point, Chairman Stone has learned something shocking about the hunts. He begins to suspect that they're aligned with foreign interests that are also buying silver. Remember that mysterious company in Bermuda that's possibly connected to the Saudis? Stone estimates that the hunts and their allies owned 77% of the world's privately held silver. The hunts seem very close to cornering the market. Stone and the commissioners walk past an angry bunker on their way to their meeting with the New York Exchange. And soon after, the New York Exchange declares new rules. They shut down the silver futures market entirely. The hunts, the Saudis, and any other speculator can no longer buy silver. Bunker and Herbert are trapped.
Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Do you ever wonder how celebrities order food? Like, is Sarah Paulson a Diet Coke or a regular Coke girly? <laughs> Some peasant Coke? No. Or how does Sofia Vergara order a pizza? No, nothing. No tomatoes. I cannot eat tomatoes. tomatoes? Yes. Are you killed mushrooms? Not really. Okay. <laughs> if these are the details you need, and I know you do, I have the podcast for you. I'm Jesse Tyler Ferguson, and on my podcast, Dinners on Me, I take some notable friends of mine out to dinners in Los Angeles and New York City. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. That thing was delicious. In January 1980, the price of silver hits a stunning new high, $50 an ounce. This is partly because of the hunts and their allies, but also partly because the world is in an unbelievable amount of chaos at the end of 1979. It is a crisis of confidence. Iran storms the U.S. Embassy in Tehran, and the hostage crisis begins. Some 60 Americans, including our fellow citizen whom you just saw bound and blindfolded, are now beginning their sixth day of captivity inside the U.S. Embassy. The Soviets invade Afghanistan. The Iranian Revolution prompts the 1979 energy crisis. Tell that goddamn governor he's going to police this goddamn gasoline situation. I will not take the blame for this thing. I will not. Within the year, unemployment in the U.S. jumps almost 2%. Inflation was around 13.5%, which is insane. All that means that when the price of silver hits $50 an ounce, it's so high that people all over the country are lining up to sell whatever they have. This extraordinary price of silver, $50 an ounce, was pulling supply out of nowhere. There were people got married in the late 70s who were selling their silver flatware because it was worth far more than they could possibly uh, ever benefit from owning silver flatware. I mean, how many dinner parties are you going to have um, when that salad fork can, can help you, can cover groceries for a week? People were pulling grandma's silver out from under the bed. So people who had silver started to dump it into the market as the prices rose, which would, of course, start to depress the price. Um, so it was a normal reaction of, of a marketplace. A lot of these Americans need cash because people aren't sure if their paycheck is going to put food on the table. Some of the more unreasonable prices this week are for vegetables at $1.29. I remember it as a young bride. I'd go grocery shopping every two weeks, and every two weeks there was a new price sticker on a can of tuna fish. The prices were going up that fast. People had no idea what they would be paying for heating oil a year from now. So there was a, a frenzy to, uh, to buy now. But because we had no idea what something would cost six months, uh, three months from then. Stick with the less expensive chuck steaks you can get about four different meals out of. Maybe then you'll be able to save enough money to buy the gasoline to get it all home. It's important to understand that chaos in the world generally makes the price of precious metals go up. Because precious metal is a tangible form of money. Inflation is so bad that, up until this point, many of these citizens were hanging on to silver because it was a hedge against global uncertainty. The Hunts understand this. It's why they want silver. 
They're worried about the same things. But now the price of silver is so high that the vast majority of people have decided they'd rather have cash than family heirlooms. People are selling everything. Cutlery and jewelry are melted down to saleable bars. Of course, this is exactly what the hunts don't want. It's hard to corner a market when supply is going up instead of down. So all of America is selling their silver. And the hunts are actually being urged by new rules in the market to sell their silver. But what are they doing? Not selling their silver. Bunker and Herbert stand together alone. But the clock is running out. Chicago is going to make them sell by April 1st. New York has shut down silver futures entirely. There's not much time left. As Henry Jarecki explains, this is a classic problem with trying to corner a market. If you don't succeed, you're in a really tough position. The moment they sell their first ounce, everybody says, oh, they're in trouble, sell. Now the market's down and they've created the problem that they want to avoid. But the hunts aren't even looking for an exit. And that's why they're so dangerous. On the next episode of Eclipsed, Bunker and Herbert play their last card. And Silver Thursday finally arrives. Eclipsed is a production of Campside Media. It's hosted by me, Bijan Steven, and written by Michael Canyon Meyer. We're produced by Lane Gerbig and Joe Hawthorne. Allison Haney is our production assistant. Archival research by Caitlin Rathie. We're fact-checked by Alex Yablon. Our engineer is Garrett Tiedemann. Our theme song is by Doug Slaywin. Our executive producers are me, Bijan Steven, and Michael, $50 an ounce, Canyon Meyer. The executive producers at Campside Media are Matt Scher, Adam Hoff, Josh Dean, and Vanessa Gregoriadis. A special thank you to civil rights legend Phil Hirschkop, who gave us a much better idea of what the Hunt Brothers were all about. Special thanks also to Diana Enriquez, Artist Burst, and Henry Jarecki for talking to us. If you want to say hello or what's up, drop us a line at eclipse at campsitemedia.com or tweet at us at EclipsePod. And if you want to follow me on social media, you can find me at Bijan Steven on Twitter and Twitch. On Instagram, I'm at Bijan Cakes. We also have a phone number. Leave us a message, pitch us a story, or tell us your nightmares. Give us a call at 949-490-2127. You might be featured on an upcoming episode. Thanks for listening. See you next time.